Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. And... uh, I sent out a notice just as the show was starting to the network, which everybody should be a part of, that uh, somebody can suggest a topic or uh, ask a question, and they can do that through the network. Or if they insist upon it, they can probably join us in the chat room. I'm not watching the chat room, but somebody does. And uh, maybe some questions will come up, and we'll try to address them in the latter half of the show. But... uh, or this podcast, or however you want to, however you hear this eventually. I had uh, thought about talking, I've been writing a lot lately, and thought about talking about uh, the law of nature, which is also defined as divine will, which is also defined as right reason. And uh, this is, they've been defined this way, all three of them defining themselves as each other for centuries and centuries and centuries uh it is not a new idea and natural law is not a law that is legislated by men it's not created by men it's believed to have already pre-existed by nature by right reason by divine will if you believe in god and lots of people say, tell me that they believe in God, but they don't necessarily act like they believe in God. Or some people tell me they don't believe in God, but they don't act like they don't believe in God. <laughs> so believing in God is, uh, you know, people say it. Well, what does it actually mean to believe in God? What, is it, what does it actually mean to believe at all? Uh, the, the term believe has changed over the centuries quite a bit from what most people think it means today. Believe today is people think that if you believe something, it's what you think. You believe what you think. But faith and, and words like belief actually has to do with what it, what you do more than what you think. It makes you act. Belief is conviction. And that conviction makes you act. You cannot resist it. You have already started the toboggan down the hill. And you can't stop it. You can only maybe steer it within the confines of uh, where you're at at a given time. That is what belief is. It is not just what you think. Religion is not just what you think. Pure religion is what you do. It's how you take care of one another. How you love your neighbor as yourself. Are you forgiving? Are you giving? These are the keys to the kingdom of God. What do you look to for righteousness? For justice? People talk a lot about social justice these days. But, I mean, what what is social justice? What is democratic socialism? These these terms are all found over on the same side of the aisle. But uh, why are we putting these adjectives, uh, social justice? Isn't justice just justice? And is justice just the enforcement of law? 
and in enforcement of what law? Legal systems are created within the natural law. They're not just created out of thin air, generally speaking. You can't just make a legal system up. It requires consent and agreement, and that consent and agreement, uh, in order for that legal system to be valid, uh, follows certain parameters that are considered reasonable or back to right reason. But then where does divine will come into it? Well, for those who assume or presume or believe that there is a God, that, uh, that there is a divine design uh, in the universe, that the, we didn't just come out of coincidence of molecules bouncing together until they formed amoebas and amoebas formed us over long stretches of time, that there's actually a design in nature to bring about life. Life has a motivation. It's not just a coincidence. You wouldn't have the stable genetics that we have the the you know you find life everywhere on this planet and yet they can't find life anywhere else in the solar system or in the universe they thought for sure they would start picking up uh electromagnetic waves radio waves from distant stars where life existed that those waves are going out there so they make a huge antenna and they listen and they listen and they listen and they're not finding it uh, we supposedly see, you know, according to some people, extraterrestrial life, you know, UFOs, what have you. Uh, there's all kinds of reports of that over the centuries. But we don't find any life out in the universe. It all seems to be hovering around this planet. <laughs> so what, what is it? And, and on the surface of the planet, in the Arctic, and in the, in the subterranean uh, areas of the ocean where light doesn't even arrive around the mouth of volcanoes life is existing uh depending upon the energy of the volcano rather than the sun what is that why is there so much life in this planet just coincidence just accidents of nature uh in such inhospitable environments actually in boiling uh, pools of hot water they find what appears to be life living on a silicate basis not just the organic basis that we we are so commonly you know the carbon basis that uh, we're most familiar with so why is there so much life here and we can't seem to find any anywhere else now, I'm not saying that you won't find life somewhere else. I don't know. That's the thing about you can't prove a negative. Uh, you, you would have to look everywhere else to prove it and, and bring a witness. <laughs> so what, what is, what is this thing we call life? What, what is motivating it to be so consistently present everywhere in our world and nowhere else? Is that just a haphazard genetic coincidence? Not likely. There's some motivating factor that brings life. Life finds a way. It struggles to exist. 
just the generations. Why, why every animal seems to have a lifespan, a limited lifespan. It's like it's programmed into their existence. They've actually done studies now that certain genetic characteristics have greater influence over the longevity of individuals, whether it's dog or dogs or mice or, or monkeys. There is a genetic markers that will extend the life of the individual. And the presence of, of certain abilities to produce, uh, chemical compounds in your body extends your life. But even though it can do that, extend your life 10, 20 years, maybe 30 years, there still is that point where you're born, you live, you die. And it's built into all creatures. There are a few that uh, undergo, we, we've talked about them before, that uh, undergo uh certain uh, sterilizing periods of their existence where they can no longer reproduce, but they also do not die. They continue to live. And so there are these phenomena. But even those things do not really seem to live forever. Um, so what is this design of life and why this... Is there a limitation on this? So according to the Bible stories, they believe that, uh, that our life was limited because of sin, because somehow or other we miss the mark. That's what sin is. That's, that's an important topic too. To, you know, people say sin. Why do you say this is a sin or that is a sin? Because it misses the mark, which is the purpose of that particular thing. You know, uh, but, you know, like sexuality. There's a purpose to sexuality, which is reproduction. It's made pleasant, or at least elements of it are made pleasant, in order to induce people, animals, creatures, to reproduce. Otherwise, they would neglect it and forget about it and not reproduce and die out. So it's built into our genetic uh, purpose to reproduce. That is the purpose of sexuality, is to reproduce. If sexuality is used for some other purpose, we call it a sin, because it misses the mark of its purpose. So what is the purpose of things like socializing or religion? Well, according to the Bible, it says religion is how you take care of the needy of your society. How you visit and provide for and care for the needy of your society. That's what religion is. Today, religion is defined as what you think. It's not even necessarily what you believe, but what you think about God. Now, of course, we redefine believe to be what you think, rather than this motivating conviction. So you start getting these different interpretations of the words that you read in things like the Bible or the Arthavedas or any kind of holy script that exists throughout the ages. If people change the meaning of words, they change the meaning of those texts because almost nobody goes back to find out what those words meant at the time. So just before the show began, 
uh, I heard the, the news report that uh, people were talking about Christians needed to study apologetics and because of the fact that when they go to college, when they go to universities, they are convinced by other people their 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 faith in their religion and I'm not talking about faith in God, I'm talking about a faith in their religion is undermined by what they hear. And so they are told that they need to study apologetics so that uh, they will not be vulnerable to these arguments. They'll understand why we believe what we believe. Well, the problem is, if you're going to turn back and study apologetics and become an apologist of, of your particular faith, you need to understand that you, almost every faith that is out there today, every religion that is out there today, every denomination out there today is doing at least something contrary to what the early church did and what Christ taught. Christ and the prophets taught because Christ was not the first one to teach most of what he said. He was often quoting people like Moses and even Abraham. And uh, referring all the way back to Adam and Eve, which uh, is is one of the earliest stories in the biblical text. That we're made from the beginning, one man, one woman. And one of the reasons why they're saying that we should study this apologetics is because people are starting to live together. And there's this cessation of marriage. And uh, marriage is not considered... Uh, to death do you part, but it's until you change your mind or find something better. And uh, the reality is they think that if we teach them apologetics, then this won't happen. And, and of course, teaching them some apologetics, some form of apologetics, which again, apologetics is the reason why you have your religion. It isn't, it isn't necessarily anything about what Christ was all about. It's in defense of your religion. The word apologetics comes from uh, uh, a Greek word, which has to do with uh, verbal defense or speech in defense of something. And that, that what they're trying to get you to defend is your belief in religion, which may include a belief in God, but... The, your religion is a doctrinal, ideological view of God. and But the reality, that's not what the Old Testament was talking about. That matter of fact, they spoke against that. You see, you can create God in your imagination and then believe in that creation of God in your mind. You create, and how do you do that? You don't necessarily build God out of bricks or stones or or carve him out of wood, which would be a graven image, but you carve him out of the bricks of rationalism. You invent a personality that you call God, and you invent that with the bricks of logic and doctrine. And, uh, you know, where you take certain ideas that you consider to be fundamental ideas or doctrines or teachings or truths. And you, you lump them together to create this image of Christ, image of God himself. 
And then you believe in that image which you have manufactured through the bricks of your own mind. And the acceptance of what you call truths. But that is ideology itself. It's just not using bricks and stones. It's using ideas. The The concept of God is that there is something greater than you that is the motivating factor in this thing we call creation. This thing we call life. Because that's, that's the amazing thing. To have billions of stars and planets revolving around them throughout the galaxy is insignificant without life. Uh, we are made of stardust. We are made of the fabric of the universe. Yet we walk and we talk, we think and we act and react to the environment around us and we actually reproduce ourselves or facsimiles thereof. We reproduce our society, our the next generation. That is amazing. You go to the moon, you go to the other stars, we don't see that going on. At least we haven't discovered it yet. It seems to be rather rare, far more rare than they thought. Yet on this planet, we see it at every turn. Sagebrush is doing it. Scorpions are doing it. Beetles are doing it. They're reproducing themselves. Generation after generation after generation for thousands of years. There, That is this force, life force, that we see all around us that is following patterns and designs in every species where they live, they reproduce, they die. I mean, even fungus sacrifice themselves. They they build up a tower of themselves, dying as they do that in order to get fungus to the top of this tower to release spores to spread the fungus to other places. How did they come to such conclusions and and, uh, such plans? Did they all sit around at meetings of little fungi trying to figure out how to do this? There is some sort of force. If there is anything to rationalism that is going to define or deduce the truth, you have to look at this process of life that we see everywhere and in awe assume that there is an intelligent designer. That intelligent designer we call God. We cannot put him in a box. We cannot put him in a bottle. We cannot contain him in an idea. We use the heuristic God. Now when you create religion around that which is has become You know, like I say, five times it mentions religion in the Bible, four times it's bad religion. Only one time is it good religion, and that is perfect religion. That is how you take care of the needy of your society. All other religions mentioned in the Bible are bad. uh, In reference to that word we see translated as religion. So, 
what what is why are they all bad? Why what what is bad about them? And why is pure religion a good thing? Well, if we're going to study apologetics, we need to understand what religion is. And religion is is something that you do. It's not something that you think. That's why it comes from, we see it translated from the Greek word, threskia, which is what you do. That's why Jesus said, it's not what you say, but what you do. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with earning salvation. That's why everybody says it doesn't matter what you do. It has to do with what you think. But that's not really true either. It's because they translate the word belief into what you think. But belief again is this conviction, this motivating force that forces you into a particular pattern or design of existence. It allows you the choice of accepting this pattern or rejecting that pattern. Eating of the tree of the life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's your choice. But once you make that choice, you are forced in a particular path or pattern. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you inherit death. You you will inherit challenges. You will inherit confusion. You will uh, inherit fear and anxiety because you've chosen to eat as a source of the tree of life, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if you eat of the tree of life, what is the tree of life? That pattern, that pattern of God, that pattern of creation, that pattern of living life more abundantly. If you eat of that tree, then you will be forced down another way, another pattern of existence, another um, pattern of of your life. And we we hear Jesus talking about that pattern. We hear the apostles talking about that pattern. And unfortunately, we don't always listen to what they have to say, but we create a doctrinal religion around that. We see certain points, you know, like we're against abortion. We, we, we see, uh, millions of children being aborted and, and killed in the wombs of their mothers. We even see today women bragging about the fact that they've had numerous abortions, shouting it, you know, celebrating it. And they, they don't see anything wrong with that. And other people are, are shocked at that and stunned at that, traumatized by that idea. And so they react against it. But what is what what is it that we really should be doing? What is really following that pattern of life? Christ said, No greater love have we than to lay down our life for our fellow man. If we lay down our life, we may pick up our life more abundantly. Is that a pattern we see in nature? Well we'll talk about that when we come back to the keys of the kingdom. What is that pattern? Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. What is one of the keys of the kingdom of heaven? To lay down your life, to have life more abundant. And that's a pattern we see throughout creation. We see it in the reproduction of and, and life cycle of creatures. Uh, 
that walk upon the earth, including mankind. Everybody who has had a family knows that uh, to have uh, children is going to require some sacrifice. Sacrifice of time, sacrifice of energy, sacrifice of life itself. We pour out our lives in our children. Every animal husband knows this. Uh, Jesus talks about, you know, for a seed to grow, first it must go into the earth and die. You bury it. You bury the seed alive. And it becomes something that it dies to being a seed and becomes a living plant. And it devours itself in order to reproduce. And for the plant to produce the seed to begin with, it took all the energy in its leaves and its stalk and its roots and it moved them up into the seeds and put them into the seed and then it dried and withered, holding the seeds up high so that they would be cast out into the world and reseed themselves as they themselves were destroyed again in the earth to be reproduced again as life. Oh, that is an amazing process and we're supposed to believe that this all came about with no intelligent design whatsoever. That is a huge leap of faith. To not believe in God, the design planner, this intelligent designer of the universe, to not believe in God is a huge leap of faith. And I point this out uh, in many places that the same arguments that the atheists use to prove that God does not exist is the same arguments that the theist uses to prove that God does exist. Usually, my experience with atheists is that they have a problem with religion. (laughs) They have a problem with synagogues and churches. Uh, It isn't so much that they don't believe in God, because most of them still live as if God existed. But they don't believe in organized religion. So, the question did come up as to what is apologetics. Uh, wondering if apologetics was the use of the Bible to prove uh, a position or argument. Well, of course, it could be. Although, uh, one of the better apologists that I've seen on the national scene is... Uh, is uh, uh, Ben Shapiro, who tries not to use the Bible <laughs> to prove uh, his religious beliefs, although he didn't even identify them as religious beliefs, but his positions on life and the interaction of man with man. And that they, they are formed in him partly by his religious beliefs, but he does not use the Bible to prove them. He uses reason which again takes us back to divine will, right reason, and natural law. Natural law and the God who created nature, nature's God, are also divine will, are also right reason. So what is apologetics? Well, in the most basic definition, it's a reasoned argument, uh, sometimes in writing, uh, as a justification of something. Typically, a theory or religious doctrine. So apologetics can be just justifying the theory that you can reason everything out. That you can deduce uh, what is true 
through rationalism. And rationalism is really a method. It's uh, considered a faculty, but it is also, from one point of view, but from another point of view, it's it's a method by which you deduce what is true and what is not. And in order to do that, you must put value on information in order to use that information in a rational way. You know, what what value does this piece of information have in relationship to this piece of information? You have to put values on them because they're going to to require an element of importance in order to use those facts in a rational way. Well, how do you put value on facts if 90 or 95% of your thinking is actually subconscious? You're not even aware of where the ideas come from. How do you know? You know, an idea comes up and you think, oh my goodness, this is this is reasonable. How do you know it's true? Well, this is why people reach out to the Bible is that they they take the premise first that the Bible is the inspired word of God. They believe that. That the Bible is the inspired word of God. They believe that in their mind. They accept that as a truth. And then they use the Bible to prove everything else. And I'm not saying that the Bible is not the inspired word of God, but I'm telling you that the people who read the Bible are often not inspired by God, but they're inspired by hidden motivations in their own life that bubble up through their subconscious into their thinking so that when they read the Bible, they interpret words according to what will confirm what they already want to believe is true. Somebody told me once, you know, a minister from Montana, Baptist minister from Montana said, the Bible interprets itself. The Bible does not interpret itself. That is an irrational statement because the Bible doesn't interpret anything. The Bible just is. Men have to read it and then take those words and interpret those words. They will use the Bible. Yes, they will use the Bible to, well, if this is so, then this has to agree with this and this has to agree with that. But I could sit down with individuals like that and bring up quotes in the Bible, quotes out of the mouth of Jesus himself that contradicts what they are often doing. And and they will, having read the Bible many times, they will say, it doesn't say that in the Bible, and I will pull it out and I'll show them it says that. Not even out of context, in the context. And they, they will say, well, I never saw that. You've read the Bible, oh, many times, but you never saw that. Because you weren't reading the Bible to find out the truth. You were reading the Bible as an apologetics to prove you were right. <laughs> you weren't, if that's your motivation, to prove that your belief is right. You've already prejudiced your thinking. And so this, this is the problem. So no, apologetics, uh, real apologetics, wise apologetics does not simply use the Bible to prove 
the truth. It may go back, you know, once you have see the truth and, and, and are speaking of the truth, you may go back and use quotes from the Bible to verify that what you're saying is true. But more often than not, you'll probably, if you're talking to somebody who also holds the Bible in high esteem, you're using the Bible to pry them loose from the wreckage of their own beliefs. And I've talked about that many times, how people people often grab onto a religion or religion itself as a sort of a life vest, a floating device in a sea of confusion. They're going mad because they cannot make sense out of life. And they find a religion that helps them make some sense out of life. And they cling to that. It's not the whole of God. It's not even God himself. But it has an image of God that they can accept. And it gives them the emotional support they can accept. Uh, and that nourishes them so that they don't just go nuts and commit suicide. You know, I always think of Nietzsche, who everybody considered to be such a great genius. And he was a very clever guy. I mean... He became, he got his doctorate and his professorship by the time he was 24. Um, but by the time he was, I think, 34, he had lost it. <laughs> and by the time he was 45, he was, I think he was dead already. Anyway, he was in a mental institution for about 10 years. Uh, he'd gone completely nuts. Uh, and, you know, he, he, he evidently had a bad, experience with churchanity, religion, and he threw uh, threw it out of his life, and with it, he threw out God. And he, he really wasn't so much against God, although he says a lot of things. You could see, you, if, you, if you read his writings, there are times when he seems angry, and he says certain things that he is saying from anger. Cleverly, he says them, because he was a smart guy. Because I, I've done a great deal of reading about Nietzsche and, and what he says and everything recently, uh, working on the, the next book. But the reality is that he wasn't really, he believed that we murdered God. And specifically, he believes that the church murdered God. <laughs> and that they used the Bible to do it. <laughs> but again, it was their, their interpretation of what it says in the biblical text and their the doctrines of their religion the orthodox doctrines of their religion that they use to murder god they actually use the words of the bible to murder god and the and the meaning of god and the meaning of the myths that we see or the stories that we see in the bible of adam and eve and abraham and moses now, he, he was living back in the 1800s, and he had uh, a limited view of what many scientists are discovering today. But, and certainly he had a limited view of history, because we've discovered so much by discovering ancient texts and then making them available and having people, you know, I mean, literally, you can go online and read the Dead Sea Scrolls down to the very fibers of the pages 
Because you can blow them up and look at each letter, letter by letter, word by word, and, and read the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they hadn't even found them yet in the 1800s. Along with Rosetta Stones and everything else, that, that we have so much more knowledge about the ancient past. But the the truth is, most reasoning, or what we call rationalism, uh, this reasoning things out, is heavily, heavily, heavily dependent upon intuition. What they call intuition. They like to use the word intuition rather than revelation. And to some degree, that, that is a good idea. Because intuition is something that pops into your mind uh, from who knows where, but clearly by way of your subconscious. But we don't know what's going on in the subconscious. Why? Why is that idea in the subconscious? Did it come from trauma? Did it come from evil spirits? Did it come from something we saw or read some ancient time in our own? Uh, did it come from epigenetics? There is a genetic memory that uh, that actually were people. Uh, with no possible way of learning certain things, you know, they're playing pianos at three. They just, they come on to a piano, they, they've never seen one before, and they start hitting the keys, and within minutes they're playing the piano. And they're playing music in the piano. Where did they get such an ability? Where did they get such a skill? Uh, and, you know, they, we have savants now that seem to know things that there's no way that they could have known this. No one could have taught them this. They just simply know mechanics. And and their conclusion is that, the, and and there's reason for this. They've actually done experiments, and we've talked about it before, with laboratory mice and what have you, where that you, you teach a mouse to go through a maze through trial and error, and then... That take the mouse out, it has offspring, and then you put its offspring into the same maze, and they figure it out way quicker, as if they have some sort of pre-existing knowledge recorded in their very DNA as to how to get through that maze, as compared to a mouse that's parents did not ever go through the maze. Well, they say that there's literally a genetic memory, and of course that's this in mice, is there also a and and the study of twins uh, taken away at birth uh, from each other and from their parents and children who were mixed up in the hospital and taken uh, and, and raised with different parents. You know, they they have abilities and perceptions and even come up with words. They they're naming their their pets. And their children, the same way their twin is naming them somewhere else. What, what is that? Is this genetic memory? Is, is there something more? You know, I, I've told the story about the, the child that was given away because their mother was a teenage pregnancy and her parents didn't allow her to keep the daughter and she didn't believe in divorce, but she gave, I mean, she didn't believe in uh, abortion. So she gave the child away and then she ended up marrying the boy who was the father of the child when they got out of high school, got out of college, and but they never could have children again. Years later, in another city, she's wanting to retire and turn her business over to one of her employees uh, 
and she has several employees, quite a few employees. And she's turning it over to one of her employees and she's re-examining the uh, uh, resume when that employee came to work for them. And she discovers that that employee was born on the same day that her she gave birth to her daughter. And then she discovered that that employee is her daughter. Her husband and her were still together, never had a child. But of all the places, 8 million people in the city... Her daughter is working for her. <laughs> They're already bound so much together. She wants to turn her business over to this girl who she thinks is just somebody who came to work for her and is actually her daughter. You can't make this stuff up. So there's a lot more going on in the universe than what we want to imagine you can see in a test tube. Or under an electron microscope. So anyway, back to apologetics. Apologetics is a reasoned argument to justify something. Can you use the Bible? Yeah, but you better understand the Bible. And I don't believe you can understand the Bible unless you also receive revelation. It is not an intellectual pursuit. If it was an intellectual pursuit, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be a good thing. It's not a good thing. It takes you down a dangerous path. Which is why one of the arguments that most uh, atheists use is that religion has caused the deaths of millions of people. And the oppression of millions upon millions of people generation after generation. You know, from, you know, religious armies marching in and taking over countries and, and, uh, inquisitions and holocausts are all based on this conflict of religion. What, what all that is based on is eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If your religion is a product of rationalism alone, then your religion is probably going to lead to death. Because that's what eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil does. (laughs) It leads to death. It leads to confusion. It leads to conflict. Your children will be bashing each other's brains out. That's what it leads to. There will be dictators rising up in your midst. The more you think you can rationalize these things out. Now, I'm not saying that divine will is not reasonable. I'm just saying you cannot arrive at it with your own efforts and thinking. You need the intuition of God, which we call revelation. You personal, personally need revelation. That's what you need. So we're going to talk more and more about this and go into it a little bit deeper in, in the second half of the show. But uh, just uh, just uh, taking a quick cursory look at if we go all the way back to Aristotle, uh, we can we can see certain things in in ancient history that uh, they understood that uh, there was this uh, 
idea of revelation that was necessary. They, they use the word intuition. Intuition is uh, is the faculty by which the mind gains a knowledge of those universal truths which are the starting point of a demonstrative reasoning. So, intuition is is knowing something before reasoning even begins to take place. And because you read it in the Bible, you don't necessarily know something unless you have already raised the Bible up to the rank of God. The Bible is the inspired words of the authors coming down to us through translators who often were not inspired. We pick up the Bible and we are already have preconceived notions of ideas and concepts and philosophies and, you know, just like I say, the definition of religion, which I, I like to go back to because it's so fundamental. If religion has changed from the pious performance of a duty to God and your fellow man to what you think about God, if it has changed that much, those two definitions of religion existed just a couple hundred years apart, much less 2,000 years apart, then how in the world can you read the Bible if they have changed one of the... You even think that the Bible is about religion. Yet it mentions it five times. The word, anyway. But once you understand that Religion is how you take care of the needy of society, how you perform your duty to your fellow man, which is not to bludgeon him over the head or to force him to pay for your abortion or to force him to pay for your welfare or to force him to pay for your social security. None of that has to do, that is all impure religion. That is all against God. But yet you do that. You want him to, you want to force your neighbor to pay for your Kids schooling. You think, well, they forced me first. <laughs> so, so now you get to force them. You see, you, you really have to get back to some basic fundamental understanding. And most of that is setting down baggage. You know, Albert Einstein said that the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. What is that gift? Where does that sacred gift of the intuitive mind come from? That's the tree of life. That's the Holy Spirit. What is the rational mind? That's the tree of knowledge. You, you're just not supposed to eat of the tree of knowledge. You're not supposed to cut it down. You're not supposed... God's truth is reasonable. You just can't reason to it. If that were true, you could create God. And that's what most religions are doing. They're creating God in your mind. That's what they use the Bible for. To create God, an image of God, in your mind. The Bible is used more for the production of idolatry in the world today than any other book. It has been that way for century upon century upon century. 
but to the intuitive mind, to the mind that would receive revelation from God, from that designer of the universe. The, the mind that, the soul, the same word that you see translated in the soul in the Old Testament is also translated mind in the Old Testament. Same word. So, if your mind, body, and spirit, not mind, body, and soul, but mind, soul, and spirit, what is moving your mind, body, and spirit? Is it God? Or is it some lesser God? Well, we'll talk more about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we've been talking about uh, apologetics. And apologetics might use the Bible, but it would that would only be of value to most people who already have accepted the Bible as the truth. So, you have to... That you have to accept that premise that the Bible is telling you the truth. Then you also have to accept that you can privately interpret the Bible. And yet the Bible tells you that it's not given to private interpretation. Yet it talks about, you know, all scripture. And, and, you know, I've talked about this before as well, is that all scripture, the word scripture there, what, what do they mean? All scripture. The, the word there that you see as scripture is the word for writings. It, uh, it's not specifically a separate word that means scripture. And when that appeared in the text, there was no Bible as we know of today. So what did they mean by all scripture? And how were they using that term, all scripture? You know, we see all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteousness. So do we know who God is because of scripture or because of righteousness? That's what we're supposed to be seeking, remember. Christ gave us instructions to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so what is that righteousness of God? It certainly isn't forcing our neighbor to contribute to our welfare. It certainly isn't coveting our neighbor's goods so that we will be more socially secure. It certainly isn't by voting in people who will rule over us. That that comes about we clearly see Cain doing that first, then Nimrod. We even see the Israelites doing it under Samuel. But they only do that because they've already rejected that God should not reign over them. How does God reign over you? Where does it say that you are to read the Bible and do what the Bible says? It says all scripture, which means all writings, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. According to that word scripture there, Mein Kampf should be included in the word description of Scripture. It, it, why, wait a minute. You mean Mein Kampf is by inspiration of God? You know, I've told people this many times. They don't really get it. But if you bring the Holy Spirit into the room or into the equation 
if it comes in with you and you can't bring it in, you can't drag in the Holy Spirit, it lists us where it wills. <laughs> but there is things that will draw the Holy Spirit to you and you to the Holy Spirit. But if you have the Holy Spirit with you and you ask a question of someone who is evil, we'll just put that in quotes, evil, or filled with evil or influenced by evil, they have to tell you the truth in the presence of the Holy Spirit. They will be very cunning about it. I mean, that's the way the, 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 the snake was in the garden. If you read the story, he told the truth. But he did it in a deceptive way so that he would mislead those that were hearing his responses very cleverly. He he told the truth in a way that it misled you to believe a lie. And of course, that's the prophecy for us in the New Testament that there would be this strong delusion that you would believe a lie. And so how do they bring that about? They have to do it by telling you the truth. But I tell you that even if you bring the Holy Spirit in to the room, or the Holy Spirit is in the room with you, somebody else brought him in, <laughs> and evil tells you the truth, you will not hear it if you do not have the Holy Spirit within your mind, within your spirit. You will not hear. You will hear the lie. You will not hear the truth. You will read the scripture And believe a lie if the Holy Spirit is not within you. So the question isn't, is the Bible true or the inspired word of God? Because I believe that, you know, what was Hitler doing in Mein Kampf? He was telling you everything he was going to do. He was giving everybody a heads up. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. This is what I think. And everybody was voting him into office, but they never read. (laughs) You know, Mein Kampf. Uh, and those who did read Mein Kampf had the same spirit in them. And they said, well, yeah, we want to do that. But the average voter, he didn't read Mein Kampf. He didn't understand what he was getting into. He was getting all excited about the rhetoric. He didn't understand what he was creating. But he didn't understand it because he was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and not eating of the tree of life. How do you eat of the tree of life? How do you get life more abundant again? You lay down your life for your fellow man. (laughs) That's how you get life more abundant. You care about others as much, at least as much. You can actually care about them more than you care about yourself. But you have to care about them at least as much as you care about yourself. That means that in the kingdom of God, there is 50% income tax. But, of course, how you pay that tax, you pay it with love. It doesn't have to be money. It could be time. It could be energy. It could be sitting down at a phone call once a week with a congregation of record. You show up once a week to that congregation of record to hear what anybody has to say. Even if you sit in silence for an hour on the phone. And you hear what they have to say. And some people will go on and on and on and on because they got a captive audience. And maybe occasionally you'll have to interrupt and say, you know, all you do is talk about yourself. You know, what do you, how, you know, know, whatever. You know, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But you may have to call them on that. And challenge one another. But you need to be led by the Holy Spirit. 
in you. That intuitive, revealing Holy Spirit that dwelleth in you. So the question again is how do you bring the Holy Spirit into the occasion? Because you cannot force the Holy Spirit in. You cannot conjure it up. You have to draw it to you. You have to make room in your heart for the Holy Spirit. One of the things you have to do is stop eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stop trying to figure it out. We actually had this discussion on the minister's call this week, or this last week, that somebody uh, who I've known for years, and I, I, I love dearly, want, want the best for him, He's still trying to figure it out. And uh, and the fact is, is you can't figure it out. That's eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You must stop resisting <laughs> it. And you, one of the ways you resist the Holy Spirit is you resist evil. You fight against evil. Like you can do something about it. When you cast out a demon... You don't cast out a demon with act of your will. It's, it's, you, you shut your will off. You know, I've talked about this before, lost in the north woods, no, no roads, no trails, nothing. Uh, you couldn't see the sun or even where the sun might be. It was so cloudy and foggy. And, uh, you know, we had to find our way out and we were losing daylight. And I just set aside all my survival skills and I just turned 360 degrees or at least 180 degrees. And I I said, when I got to the point where it felt like this was a good way to go, I shut off my brain and went by that still small voice and just led me right out. Miles, we walked extremely fast because we were losing daylight. We had already spent several hours being lost and completely turned around and could not find our way back to what we thought might have been the trail. There was no real trail in. And we just walked extremely fast for several hours and just before it got dark, we hit the road where our vehicle was parked and we saw the road for the first time and we were making a beeline for the front door of the car, (laughs) the Jeep. You know, on this old dirt road. I mean, we could not have come out more precisely. And yet we did not use until... I'd done the same thing out at sea at night in the dark with nothing to go by. No maps, no anything. We navigated through shoals and ended up in the harbor right where we needed to go. uh, Which was a big harbor or anything. and Just a a little uh, place where there was a jetty and you were out of the waves. And... uh, we did it by turning off our intellect. Well, that's not always so easy to do. In times of great trials, sometimes you can do it. But I would suggest you start practicing now. Do not open up the Bible with the intentions of figuring it out. If you are led to open the Bible, ask what it has, the Spirit has to say to you, to tell you. Mostly what you need to know is about you, not about the rest of the world. You're not going to solve the rest of the world's problems. That's not your goal in life. Your goal is to deal with your problems. All those things that are blocking you 
and blocking the Holy Spirit from entering you. It's cleaning out your temple, your your body, your mind, your soul, your heart. That's that that's the mission. You cannot find the righteousness of God until you admit the truth about yourself. So it really isn't so much apologetics that uh, can protect Christians from leaving the church. The truth is, most churches you ought to leave. <laughs> now I'm not not telling you to leave the church. It, it, the more you bring the Holy Spirit into the equation, you will probably be kicked out of most churches. They they will not want you there. I mean, they they will be afraid to touch you. They won't they won't want to grab you and throw you out. If they do, you have some more soul searching to do. But they you will definitely become unwelcome there. But that's okay. You don't you're not angry with them, you're not resentful, you do not even leave because they don't like you. You leave because God is leading you. Now, how do you get to that point where you're walking through the world listening to the Holy Spirit? I mean, it's a struggle. That still small voice, it seems to want to whisper more and more to get you to listen closer and closer. So, yeah, you can use Scripture in a arm's length sort of way. You know, I used to my uncle, when he'd read a book, he'd hold his arms out. <laughs> All the way, because he he was so far sighted from living in North Dakota, everything was far away and seeing distances. That's the way his eyes were, uh, is that they had adjusted to seeing things far off. So he had to hold his book all the way out. Sometimes his arms didn't seem to be long enough to read the book. <laughs> so, but uh, the reality is that you, scripture, was inspired by God and. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Now, doctrine is just teachings. For reproof, that includes rebuke. And for correction, that means telling you you're doing this wrong. And for instructions in righteousness. Well, it isn't righteous to covet your neighbor's goods. I got that out of the Bible. Because it will make you merchandise. If you're merchandise, I got a letter here. It's still sitting on my desk. I talked to the other ministers about it. It's a letter from a prisoner in New York. And uh, he he writes that he wants to uh, become a member of our church. and uh, But he also says that he is a secured party creditor. Uh, sovereign UCC1, and then he gives me the file number where he's filed these UCC papers, so now he's this sovereign and a secured party creditor. And he wants to be a member of our church, but he's in jail because he hired an attorney and because he lacks knowledge. That's why he's in jail. Well, he's actually in jail because he was distributing heroin and cocaine. And he was arrested with 22 ounces of heroin on him. And he evidently has some uh, recorded verbal admissions of being a heroin and cocaine dealer in a small town in New York. And uh, was making a living by doing that for quite some time. It was a major uh, drug sting. Makes no mention of that. <laughs> uh, 
And so, you know, but this is t- common. I get lots of these letters all the time and have gotten them over the years. And some people I get in touch with and were in touch with them for a long time. I actually was at the jailhouse door for numerous people when they were released. I helped people uh, get back on their feet, get their car back, everything at great expense of my own. And that was okay. But I get to choose who I'm going to help and who I'm not going to help and how I'm going to help and how I'm not going to help. And I can't find the answers to that in the Bible. Although I find principles in the Bible, I am not trying to use the Bible to create an image of God. God is who God is. He is the creator of life. He is the great designer. He is all these different names. And yet he is none of them. Because he is what he is. And nothing more, nothing less. And so, I can't put God in a bottle of my own thinking. I cannot put the truth in a bottle of my own thinking. I can use, take mind comp, I can use the Holy Scriptures, I can use all uh, Greek and Hebrew to try to show you what you have picked up that is keeping the Holy Spirit out. Because if you fill yourself up, With faith in your imagined view of God. That's what you have faith in now. Is what you believe God to be. What you think God to be. What you think His doctrines are. If those are your private interpretations of the Bible. Because see, the Bible, the Scriptures are not given. The Holy Scriptures are not given to private interpretation. What do they mean by not given to private interpretation? Does that mean that we have, you can only go to scholars and ask scholars, you know, orthodox ministers and priests and bishops to find out what the Bible says and then you have to listen to them? Then they are your gods. They are the ones you believe in. No, you need divine revelation in you. God, this is Old Testament, New Testament talks about that. I shall write my laws upon your hearts and upon your mind. Well, if you're over there eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, using the Bible to prove your point, because I'm not using the Bible to prove my point. I'm not using uh, all the information I put in the covenants of the gods. I warn you at the beginning of that book that the you know, quotation of information and facts and the presentation of facts is not meant to rule your mind. The quotations of the Bible are not meant to rule your mind. I am not trying to create an ideology which you may worship in your mind. I'm trying to awaken your mind so that you can see what you did not see before. But if you want to pursue that righteousness you must set down a lot of what you have already accepted as truth you have to let go of the wreckage of your personal doctrines your personal interpretation of the bible and cling to that which is revealed unto you in the righteous pursuit of the kingdom of god pursuit of the kingdom of god is the other part of seeking righteousness. You must seek the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. And then everything else will start falling into place. So, seeking righteousness is certainly not, as I said, bludgeoning your neighbor over the head if he doesn't provide you with enough gifts, gratuities, and benefits. That is, And that is the name of the game today. You go to church to make you feel good about the fact that all week long you have been forcing your neighbors to provide you with fire departments, police services, free education for your children, welfare and social security for your parents. Uh, And so you go to church and the church says, that's your good boy. That's okay. Even though that covetous practice of doing all those things has brought you into bondage, made you merchandise, and cursed your children with a debt they will never pay off. So there's reproof. Using the Bible for reproof and hopefully correction. It's not correction unless you change. (laughs) It's only reproof now. It's only correction when you change what you've been doing and start doing something else. And you will not change what you've been doing until you change your thinking. And you don't know what to change your thinking to unless you let, let the Holy Spirit into your life. And you can't get the Holy Spirit into your life if you're still sitting over there trying to figure it out. If you're still trying to figure it out yourself, you're still eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You want to know what you can do to discover the truth and let the truth in you, the Holy Spirit in you? Start keeping your commitments to your children, to your wife, to your husband. Start caring about your neighbor. Stop worrying about the fact that the whole world has gone mad and is doing evil things and all that stuff. And start dealing with the people right in front of you. If you say you're going to do something, do it. If you say you're going to be something, be it. And if you see that what you've said before is wrong, admit it and confess it and Get pick up and start going back and righteous. Start laying down your life for your fellow man. I re- I remember somebody was, you know, I, and I've seen it here. People are uh, where the legal system. They're actually a big deal going on now, all across the West, where the BLM is going to be reevaluating its classification of lands. So you know you have. Uh, lands that are classified as wilderness areas and you can't do certain things in those wilderness areas. You can't go in there. You can't even fight fire in some of these areas. You can't use uh, mechanical, uh, you know, equipment, you know, like bulldozers or firefighting equipment or anything to go into these areas because it's off limits. Well, they're reevaluating their classification and I have people still researching as to what they're doing there. Uh, just for, from my point of view, for an educational purposes, they're doing it in self-defense. But if they're saying, well, this isn't wilderness area, but it's like wilderness area. That's the new classification. Well, once they get that classification all in place, they can come down with a rule and say, whether an area is wilderness area or like a wilderness area, these rules apply. <laughs> You know, and uh, 
and Forest Service and BLM are getting more and more law enforcement officers in their system. And we've seen this for a long time. And, you know, the Bundys kind of bumped into it headlong. And and most people don't understand what that was all about. They they equate all of what they're doing with what what the individuals are doing. And I don't agree with all of what they are doing, but uh, people need to understand that. Maybe we could have some roundtable discussions sometimes and talk about some of these issues or have some of these... Uh, people on the program so they can understand what's going on behind the scenes. But really what you need to know is what's going on in your scene, in your life. Because it, it, you, the Holy Spirit isn't going to come because you figured out what the Bundys were doing. The Holy Spirit is going to come when you figure out what you're doing. And what you're, what some are doing is they're trying to figure it out. By eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they don't realize that understanding it, whatever it is, is a matter of revelation. You cannot reason out the divine. You cannot understand why life is in every corner of this planet. And yet we can find none of it on the moon or Mars or any other planet. Why did God create life? What is his divine plan for that life? Why is it so abundant here amongst us? And is that same abundance in us? I just heard somebody found out they were going to have cancer, or they had cancer, dead in a matter of weeks. Uh, and then once that story came up, all kinds of other stories where people find out they have cancer and they're dead in a few weeks. What what's going? Why is life just ripped away from these individuals so quickly? And and what is really going on? What what is the power of life? What is the power of prayer for others? How do you put more power in your prayer? You don't have control over the power. God has control over the power. You can't you know like squint your eyes harder and make your prayers. More viable, more powerful. How do you make your prayers more powerful? How do you bring the power of God, the power of life, the power of creation into your life where you can heal your marriage, heal your spouse, heal your children? How can you do that? How can, can you make life more abundant in the life around you now where you often find death? And destruction. One way is sacrifice. Another way is forgiveness. How can you forgive your neighbor when you're shaking your fist at government? Where you're resisting evil with your will and power. How can God come in if you're going to do the judging? Judge not. Another key to the kingdom. Why? Because it's not your job. It's God's job. How do you, how do you let God judge? Stop judging yourself. Stop, you know, people are always doing this, trying to point out where somebody else is wrong. Where somebody else is evil. Where somebody else is a threat. The only threat 
is that you're turning your back on the life that God wants to fill you up with. And you're doing it because you're still in the process of your personal acts of will. And instead of your submission to that which giveth life. So we need to take another look at what we've been doing and ask ourselves, are we conforming to the early church? Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So everybody should belong to the network and everybody should be striving to become a part of the living network, which is assumedly people that are seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So they're gathering together in the pattern that Christ commanded his disciples, his ministers, the disciples means students, student ministers. He commanded them when he appointed them to the kingdom uh, and before at the loaves and fishes that the people gather in tens, hundreds, and thousands uh, so that they may rightly divide the bread from house to house so that nobody had to go to Caesar to eat the bread of Caesar, to sit at the table of Caesar because their table was a snare. That's how you become merchandise. You covet the gifts, gratuities, and benefits, the dainties of the king, as they refer to in Proverbs. And then you eat at their table, which is filled with deceitful meats that will draw you back into the elements of the world. All this is in the text over and over and over and over again. But people study the Bible and they completely miss it. And they go out and they're still praying to men who exercise authority. They're praying to men who take away from their neighbor in order to get their daily bread. Because they're not really praying to God. They'll recite the Our Father, but they have no idea what they're they're saying. And so the church is just a place you go to feel good. And if they can find something else that makes them feel good from from uh, the opiate of religion to heroin, uh, amphetamines, and cocaine... They will go to that instead of go to the church. They will go to a music concert instead of go to church. Uh, and that was one of the things that Nietzsche said, that until they come up with better music, he didn't want to go anymore. <laughs> because he didn't see church was superfluous to him. It didn't mean anything to him. That's why he said God is dead. And he said this actually in his book, The Parable of the Madman. And of course, Nietzsche went mad, partially because he had abandoned, you know, the one of the things that religion does is say that, you know, that you should not have sexual relationships outside of marriage. And, you know, they, they create these bars and, and prohibitions. Now, there's a reason for that. And... Uh, if they don't give you the reason, that would be apologetics to explain the actual scientific and rational reason to do that. To, to make marriage a permanent relationship. In order to make marriage a permanent relationship, you have to be immersed in forgiveness and giving. Both of you need to be immersed in forgiveness and giving. If one of you is not as giving as the other, then the other needs to be immersed deeper in forgiveness. <laughs> so, uh, that's the way marriage works. Rome uh, experienced almost a complete cessation of marriage. 
that marriage had been the core foundation of Roman society for hundreds and hundreds of years. But at the, by the fall of Rome, marriage had almost completely disappeared as a permanent institution. And uh, we can go into that more later. But the reality is is that uh, it, Nietzsche partially went mad because he had contracted syphilis in a brothel at a young age when he was still in college. and But he also went mad because he looked into the abyss and he had nothing to hold on to. Not even the artifices of religion of his time. And so therefore, if you stare into the abyss, you will be drawn into the abyss. And And that's what happened. I mean, he went literally nuts. But it was interesting, one of the Things that, you know, he was having considerable problems before this. But the triggering event was he saw somebody beating a horse. And he ran across and, and threw his arms around the horse to protect the horse. And and, uh, and to comfort the horse. Yet he did not have the same compassion for mankind. And, you know, that's a phenomena that people need to explore. And if you find yourself having tremendous compassion for animals, not that you shouldn't have compassion for animals, but it seems to almost outweigh your compassion for your fellow man, you've got a problem. You have no problem with taking welfare from a bankrupt government to feed a hundred dogs or ten dogs or five dogs that you, you then you don't care about the people that government is is plummeting into debt and taking taking their life and their earnings and their sweat and their toil away from them so that you can have free money to feed all these dogs and cats and you see no correlation no contradiction no hypocrisy in that your compassion is more towards animals than it is towards mankind. You won't forgive your brothers and sisters. You won't even talk to them anymore. But, oh, you forgive your cat and your dog. So, there's a problem with that. You've drifted away. But anyway, in the parable of a madman, uh, Nietzsche says, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we murder of all our murderers? How, he says, how shall we, murderers of all our, our murderers, console ourselves with the fact that we have killed God? That which was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet possessed has bled to death under our knives. Wow. That, no, nobody, everybody likes to read God is dead. But they don't want to read the fact that we killed him. <laughs> well, how did we kill him? You know, he goes on to say the deed is still more distant from them than the distant star. And yet, they have done it themselves. Uh, what is he talking about? Well, he has in quotes here. What are these churches now if they 
are not the tombs and sepulchers of God. What did Jesus say about you whited sepulchers? Talking to the church of his day, to the Pharisees of his day, which had become a den of thieves. He called them sepulchers. And here we see Nietzsche calling the churches tombs and sepulchers of God. They have killed God. They had murdered him with their own knives. They had, and how? Well, I don't know that Nietzsche, Nietzsche saw a problem. There's no two ways about it. And he argued against it, but he didn't have all the tools of that argument necessary. His apology in opposition to the church was was not really in opposition to the church established by Christ, but it was in opposition to the church established by men who used the Bible to create their church, their idea of church. What what was the real thing that was the problem with the church and religion at the time of Nietzsche? And has it gone away or has it compounded itself? Uh, Nietzsche had such a bitter taste concerning religion and the church and, and, that he saw and experienced at that time that he railed against it rather than trying to understand it. I had some problems with the church too because I realized at one point that the the ministers of the church that I was attending and that I was studying in and what I was raised up in were lying to me. Both by overt lying, but also by omission. Part of that omission was because they themselves did not know as well. They were under the same strong delusion. Now, I could judge them, and I certainly probably did at that time, or I could forgive them. Forgive them their transgressions against my soul and mind. And seek to know the truth. And I tell you, that is far more liberating than simply walking out of church. There's a huge movement of people that are no longer going to what they call the institutional church. Yet it's very clear that Christ instituted a church. They're leaving an institutional church, but they're not going to the institutional church of Christ. They're leaving the institutional church of man, but not entering the institutional church of Christ. Their churches are making them feel good. They're still looking, because they that's what they all talk about all the time, as how they were feel so inspired. They feel so uh, renewed and juvenated. And some of that may be good. But are they doing what the early church did? The early church rightly divided the bread from house to house. They took care of all the social welfare of all Christians that no longer had to go to Caesar and wrote one of the first apologetics of Christianity in 150 AD telling Caesar, this is how we take care of one another. We gather every week and those that have that share with those that don't have enough. We see right in the beginning of the epistles that Paul is taking what men are sharing to other nations. And rightly dividing those resources, those faith, emergency, ministry, auxiliary donations 
in other lands to help them during times of depressions and dearths. Is the home church gearing up to do that? Are they sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands? This is what the network was created to allow you to do. But then we come across in Mark that we are commanded to make you do that. Yet we still have people that have been on email networks, but never congregating together, never sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and wanting our assistance. They want the loaves and fishes, but they don't want to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands as Christ commanded. And to serve them without rebuking them, and we have served them in the past, but they did not repent. They continued, and and still to this day, they would rather get angry than repent and do what Christ commanded. They make up all kinds of excuses uh, not to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, or to delay it. But Christ talks about that as well, where everybody has an excuse. Nietzsche goes on to say, Who will wipe this blood off us? What blood? The blood for killing God. The blood of the churches murdering the prophets of God, which took place during the Inquisitions. Undoubtedly took place during the Inquisitions. Who will wipe this blood off us? With what water could we purify ourselves? What festivals of atonement What sacred game shall we need to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we not ourselves become God simply to be worthy of it? So he asks all these questions. And he goes on to say, There has never been a greater deed, and whosoever shall be born after us For the sake of this deed, he shall be part of a higher history than all history hitherto. Well, I can tell you who who shall wipe the blood off us is Jesus Christ. But it's Jesus Christ in us. If we will not accept the waters of his baptism, when everybody got the baptism of Christ, They were cast out of the systems of the world. They no longer could go. Now, early on, people were getting baptized and seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. John the Baptist was saying that. And I'm sure that people were doing that, sitting down and taking care of one another. We have a whole history of Essenes who were doing that. And many people equate John the Baptist with the Essenes. They were taking care of one another. And that we have the historical record of that. That they were the most philanthropic group, not only amongst themselves, avoiding the benefits of Rome, even the roads of Rome, the marketplaces of Rome, had created their own system through this networking practice. They were, they were heavily involved in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But early Christians had to do this at Pentecost. There had already been the command that anybody who got the baptism of Christ, the baptism of the anointed, the baptism of Jesus, the King of Judea. In other words, accepting Jesus Christ. Jews baptized before John the Baptist baptized. To get the baptism of Jesus Christ was to accept 
Jesus as the Christ, as the King. Jesus said, no more forced contributions, only faith, hope, and charity. Uh, no more top-down rule by me. You look out amongst yourselves, find men you trust, and you choose your ministers by sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and choosing a min- ten men, choose a minister. Ten ministers choose their minister. This is how you sit down in those ranks of tens, hundreds, and thousands. This is how it works. I know people going back and trying to have the festivals. But they're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Only a dozen men show up at their at their festival. Uh, but many people go there trying to figure it out again. Rather than simply do it. What sacred game shall we need to invent? We need to rediscover what they were doing in the early church. The festivals of atonement is to lay down your life, to cast your bread upon the waters, to gather together. That's going to require forgiveness. It's going to require love. It's going to require patience. To live by hope that other people will be there for you. It's going to require sacrifice. You may have to lower your standard of living. But there will never be a greater deed. Now, you're not saved by the deed. But you will find yourself doing the deed when you really repent. Repent of what? Repent of judging others, including the evil of the world. Love those that are evil against you. And let God be the judge, not you. You don't need to judge. You need to see, well, that's wrong. That's discernment. Judge is when you shake your fist and try to impose your will upon others. Let God do the imposing of will upon others. Nietzsche talks about the overman. This He says it never existed, the overman, but that the... Uh, uh, he says, what is the ape to man? A laughingstock, a painful embarrassment. And man shall be just that for the overman, a laughing stock or a painful embarrassment. He writes this in, uh, you know, thus speak, uh, spoke uh, Zarathustra, uh, which is another writing of his. Some of his writings were published after his death, but uh, he wasn't very successful during his life. Uh, like I said, he lost his. Uh, Tenure when he ten years after he had gotten it, but uh, the uh, the reality is is that the overcomer, which that's what I would talk about, not the overman. Overman is his term. The overcomer would not look at other men as a laughing laughing stock or painful embarrassment. He would look at them as Christ looked at us with love and patience. And forgiveness. Now he might rebuke them. As many as I love I also rebuke. But he would not look down upon them. He would actually give his life. That they might be saved. Because that's what Christ did. Christ set the example. Is that what you're doing in your church? Or are you going to church for a good feeling? You know I, I was just the other day. I was correcting a little typo. In our 
birth certificate documents. And uh, I was looking at, we have a list of all the congregations that have formed over the years. And many of them have fallen, you know, into inactivity. Because they did not persevere, which is why Christ made such a big deal about persevere. <laughs> that, yet, not only do you have to stop making excuses why you're not coming together, uh, stop making up excuses why you're not laying down your life in, in the form of tithing or, 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 or service or however you are led to do it. But you have to lay down your life for others. You get to choose how to do that and hopefully you choose according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But that is your walk alone. It is not my walk to tell you what to do. But you also, if you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God and His righteousness, you must walk alone together with others. Because you'll have no practice in forgiveness unless you do. You need to sacrifice with others according to the leading of the Holy Spirit within you. This is what the Bible has been telling you for generation upon generation, but this is not what people are doing. Most of the people going to church, reading the Bible, studying it in great detail, are going to men who exercise authority for their daily bread. How can you justify that in your rational mind, if you see the first century church was persecuted because they wouldn't sign up for the free bread of Rome. Which is clearly historically the fact. Which is why Justin in his apologetics is saying, we don't do it like you do it. We gather every week and those that have share with those that don't have enough. And the persecution receded when he wrote that to Antonius Pius. It came back again because somebody else took what he wrote and tried to create problems with it. And uh, But that's another story which we don't have time to go into. But uh, that's why Christians were persecuted. They were persecuted because they were accused of being atheists. They had no visible God to pray to. They would not join some temple or church or become a member of some temple to obtain their daily bread. They lived by hope. But they did sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Organized themselves in voluntary groups. I was going to say associations, but that word has taken on a new meaning in the last hundred years. Uh, so we don't want to use that word because it may mislead people. And our job is not to mislead people. That's the job of evil. <laughs> our job is to awaken people. But if the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, you will be compelled by your love of that Spirit to do things in, in accordance to Christ and God and the prophets. If that Spirit is not in you, no matter what you tell me, I will see you doing what God has forbid. You will make covenants with them and with their gods. You will covet your neighbor's goods. 
you will assist them in murdering others, both the unborn and the foreigner and the freedom fighter in other nations. (laughs) You know, you will do these things. You will rob your neighbor so that you may have more dainties on your table of unrighteousness. You will become lovers of the reward of unrighteousness. We have articles of uh, reward of unrighteousness. Um, we have articles up on becoming merchandise because of covetous practices. We have articles up on covetous practices. We have all these things so you can read them. We have our, uh, uh, recordings so that you can ponder these things. But where the real teacher is, is the Holy Spirit. And you will not hear the Holy Spirit if you don't stop trying to figure it out yourself. And to start walking in the ways of Christ. Which included the commandment to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And love thy neighbor as thyself. Forgive thy neighbor. To take care of thy neighbor, both friend and foe. Through charity and love. Rather than force and violence. This is the way. This is the keys of the kingdom. And there is no other key that will fit the lock to your salvation but those keys given to us by Christ. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.